Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Crosspoint. Today we have a very short passage of Scripture. One of the great preachers of the English language, C.H. Spurgeon, in his wonderful little commentary on the Psalms, said that this psalm is one of the shortest to read and the longest to learn. Let me tell you about it. First of all, have you ever, those of you, if you're old enough to be in this service, that means you're at least in junior high school. Little kids are elsewhere on campus. We should pause and pray for their teachers right now. Um, <laughs> and thank God for them, which I do every single week. But if you're old enough to be in here, you remember being a little kid do you ever wish you could go back and just be a little kid again? Does it look kind of stress-free to you, kind of, kind of cool, that your biggest decision of the day may be tater tots or french fries? <laughs> See, chances are, if you've ever yearned to go back, and I have, chances are you don't actually remember what it's like to be a little kid. Little kids do not have the gift of perspective. They're too little to know that every single thing that happens against them is not necessarily the end of the world. Uh, I've, I've tried to remember between services, I think it was Balboa. Years ago, we were having ice cream down in Balboa. They've got this cool, rustic little wooden bench outside the ice cream shop, or at least they did back then. And I'm sitting there eating far more ice cream than a grown man should and watching a family with little kids load their kids up with ice cream. Well, sure enough, one of the littles got two scoops, which I admired and appreciated because, you know, the cone was practically bigger than he was, but he also had an older sibling who bumped him on the way out of the shop, and somehow both scoops, bam, down on the sidewalk. What happened next? Right! You know, it was like a Greek tragedy. You would think his entire family had just been murdered in front of him. There was just no sense of proportion whatsoever, just this heart-rending wail. And of course, the parents rushed to see what happened, saw the ice cream, loaded him up in their arms, you know, hot tears dripping down onto the hot sidewalks. Sad scene. Now, two minutes later, of course, you know, these were good parents. They didn't say, well, that's the way life goes. This will be a valuable experience to you. We don't always get what we want. Even the, even the Rolling Stones know that, kid. So remember, you know, keep your head on a swivel and watch your six. Sometimes you'll get bumped from behind and be deprived of the simple pleasures of life, and I hope you learn something valuable from this. They didn't do that. They scooped him up, and, buddy, it's okay. We'll get some more. <sighs> you know, the bubbles in the nose and the whole thing. I was... You've been there, you've seen it, that used to be you, and sometimes as a grown-up, you wish you could go back primarily because you don't actually remember how hard it was. When we read Psalm 131, you can look there. This is that short psalm, psalm that is so short to read and so long to learn. David's going to use a word picture of a little child. The Psalms are songs, and they're, they use images, they use pictures to try to convey to the reader, to the person who will sing it 
in Israel's time who will read it in ours to try to get you to see before you understand and put into practice a simple truth about God and His world. If you look in Psalm 131, you'll notice two things in the title. First of all, it was written by David. And it says also a song of ascents. A song of ascents means that this is one in a small collection of psalms that were written to Israel that they were to sing on the road to Jerusalem. Jerusalem had the high ground in Israel. Everyone who went to Israel climbed up a long hill to get there. And this song was given to Israel so that they, when families from all over the kingdom were coming to worship God in Israel in one of their important days, they were to sing this together. If you've ever gone on road trips, you probably have a playlist, right? Your road songs, not sleepy stuff. You don't want to go flying off the 405 somewhere and sleep. Peppy stuff, happy stuff that'll keep you, make you keep driving toward the terrible state you're headed to because it's awesome here, okay? These were songs of ascent, songs on the way to Jerusalem that David wanted his people to sing together as they prepared to encounter God. And what David is telling them is a life lesson that he's learned. David has turned a spiritual corner in his difficult life because the life of, of David was exceedingly difficult and filled with challenges. He's learned something that he wants to convey by way of a personal testimony. In the first two verses, he's going to talk about himself, what he's learned and what he's done. Then he's going to turn to his people and say, I want you to live like this. See, it's hard for you and I to imagine just how difficult the life of David was on a daily basis. David was a warrior king. He lived a thousand years before Jesus in a world that is unimaginably savage and brutal to our modern understanding. David got up every morning and with the certain knowledge that there were people all around his nation that hated him. He knew that there were powerful kings and powerful alliances that could be brought against him who would count it a very good day if by the end of the day David were dead. He knew that in the ancient world there were seldom negotiations, there were coups and attacks. He lived in the kind of world where people had their eyes torn out, were publicly mutilated, where as a sign of victory there might be rape or mutilation. Murder. David lived in the world where cities that were especially hated might be torn down to the ground so that one stone wasn't on top of another, might be burned up until there was nothing left to burn, and then sometimes they put salt in the ground so that nothing would grow there for a long time. David also knew as a king that the most common way for power to be handed from one generation to the next wasn't an orderly election with people campaigning, but a palace coup. David knew that in his world, what often happened and led from one king to another was intrigue and betrayal and murder. That was his world every single day. you imagine waking up knowing that thousands of people hate you? That some people would be happy if you were dead? 
that they would count it a victory for their pagan false god if your city could be destroyed, and that if they were allowed to, the last thing they would let you see would be your destruction before they killed you too. That was David's world. In other words, he lived in a high-stress environment. If David were a 21st century executive, he would probably have a whole team of people around him, including a life coach and someone that would put aromatherapy in the room because his life was difficult. He had ordinary economic concerns too. Israel's in an arid climate. They depended day to day on things that they could not control like the rain. If David and his leadership failed, people could actually go hungry and die. Pressure every single day. And this is what he wrote and this is what he taught Israel to sing. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That is a short psalm, isn't it? just three verses in a world of wisdom. What's it mean? David says in the first verse, I've learned not to occupy myself with things that are too big for me. What David says, and that's what the first couple phrases mean, David says, I have learned to be humble. Look at verse 1. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What does he mean? Well, David's perspective is different from our modern perspective. A common saying in our culture is this, don't sweat the small stuff. You ever heard that? That's not what David's saying. What's David saying? Put it in your own words. David's saying, I don't sweat... I don't sweat the big stuff. What in the world is going on? David says, my heart is not lifted up. Verse, first line, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. In his world of crushing stress, David says, I have stopped concerning myself with things that are too big for me. On the contrary, and this is the word picture, I have become instead like a, and here's a strange word picture. What did David say he was? A weaned child. Hmm. Well, well, there's some distance there, even for me. I'm just a guy. What in the world did David mean by saying, I have become like a weaned child, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Well, what does a weaned child mean anyway? What is that? This is the part where we talk. <laughs> a weaned child is a, a small child who no longer needs what? Mother's milk. Is off the breast or off the bottle? Any of you ever weaned a child? Ever helped a kid through that transition where they give up the breast and the bottle? Isn't it fun? Children relinquish that so easily, don't they? You remember that when you sat down with your little child and said, listen, I need to talk to you. 
you're at a threshold of an important developmental stage in your life. For as long as you've been with us, you have enjoyed mother's milk. And then we gave you a bottle, and that's been wonderful. But now, you've benefited as much as you probably will from the breast and the bottle. You see, all that time, you remember having this conversation with your child? When you said to your child, mother's milk has transfer factors in it. She has been, this is marvelous, I hope you understand this, she has been communicating to you a great deal of immune knowledge so that your body has been healthier and stronger than it otherwise would be just because your mother cared for you in that way. But now, you're entering a whole new stage of development, and you're actually going to need more calories and especially more protein than we can currently give you because there's things in your neurology and in your muscular development and your bone development that we're just going to have to rely on good things like protein and green vegetables especially for you to play sports someday. You want to play sports, don't you? You remember this conversation with your child? How did that go? You didn't have that conversation, right? As a parent, you knew that there was a time when that child had to be weaned. And here's David's point. Weaned children don't like it. They cry out for the breast. They cry out for the bottle. They cry out for the pacifier, which doesn't even have anything in it. And they hold on to it like grim death. One of the strongest humans in the planet is a small child hanging on to that bottle. And they become desperate and angry and manipulative and all kinds of terrible things trying to stay in that stage. What's David saying? I used to strive and stress like that. I've learned something, David says to Israel. He speaks to God and he says, Lord, my eyes are not lifted, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes aren't trying to look too high. I'm not occupying myself with things that I now understand are too big for me. I've learned instead to lean back and rest in you, even though the process hasn't been easy. See, our culture says, don't sweat the small stuff. David says, I'm not even sweating the big stuff anymore because I have a big God. Let's make this personal. I've given you a lot of space to write. Could you write down on that paper or at least fix in your mind the things that you continually stress over, the things that you hang on to, the things that you worry about. Just take a few seconds. There might be a, there might be a big list, and it'll do you good to get it down on paper and get it in front of you. What's your big stuff? What do you worry about? You got it? Should have provided some of you with more paper. Okay, thanks for doing that. Now look over that list. Is there anything on that list that depends entirely on you? 
If you think about it, there's not. You can't draw one more breath without God's provision. It's not up to you. I don't know what's on the list. I care, but I don't need to know. I'm sure there's things like this. I'm sure that family factors big. I'm sure that health is a big concern. I'm sure that work and income and broken family relationships and things like addictions and secret sins that didn't get written down but immediately surged to the top of your heart. I'm sure that all of those things are on the list or on your mind, and what I want to get you to see is what David learned through painful experience. There's not one thing you can write down that you can control. You can't produce the outcome you want in one single one of those things because your very life does not depend upon you. That's what David learned. That's why he said, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I'm humble. The school of humility is a painful school. It's never easy. The tuition is always high. But if it brings you to the point of renouncing that stress and that concern and instead trusting God, it'll all be worth it. Because that really is the heart of genuinely having a relationship with God. If I can just bring you into my own experience and the things that make life difficult and unpleasant, both for me and my family, I'm just like you. I love to control things. I like to work and arrange and plan and have conversations and do things so that I get the outcomes I want. Don't you do that? Without being manipulative, you just, you just try. What David here is saying is that that will to control and to control outcomes and trusting in God cannot coexist. There's always a choice between pride in your ability to get it done and trusting in your heavenly Father. And David said, I now, like a weaned child, a child that has learned to rest, I'm not trying to look into heaven anymore. I'm not striving for understanding. I'm not demanding answers from God anymore. I have learned like a weaned child to rest in Him. See, when we try to control things, when we try to produce outcomes, God has given us responsibilities, and you can see it in the life of David. He always except when he strayed from God and directly disobeyed him, God, David always fulfilled his responsibilities before God. But having done that, he rested and trusted. When we don't, when we try to look into heaven, when we take things on to ourselves that are quite literally far too large for us, it's like trying to climb up and peer into heaven and say to God, God, what are you doing? Would you please explain yourself? That's the difference between a striving, angry, crying, screaming child and a weaned child. It's like a four-year-old worrying whether his parents have enough in their 401k. It's too much for him. Can you imagine the four-year-old laying awake in bed at night? I just don't know about this market. They keep saying the economy's better, but I certainly don't see it, and I'm not sure where to put our money. 
Stocks are very volatile. It's just up and down. You never know what you're going to get. Bonds don't get you anything anymore, and the governments look shaky to me anyway. Their, their long-term indebtedness scares me to death. I have no idea where to put our money. Can you imagine a four-year-old having that rumination? They don't. Why? It's too big for them. Pride says, you can handle it. You can figure this out. Go ahead and climb up into heaven. Peer over the walls of heaven and see your heavenly Father at work and say, hey, what are you doing? What's the plan here? See, He may give you answers or He may not, just the same way you treat your children. Many times I explained to my children what we were doing and what was ahead. Other times I just did it because they literally didn't need to know. Many times because they couldn't possibly understand it. David says, I've given up on that. I'm like a weaned child, verse 2, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I don't know if there's a more peaceful picture in the entire world than a child that has been fed and weaned, who is taken up into his father's or his mother's arms, and they rest that fat little cheek on the shoulder and they look out. I've got pictures like this in my house and several in my office. Just a chubby little face staring back at the camera, perfectly content, not knowing that all kinds of things were going around in our family and all kinds of things were being accounted for in their lives. They didn't worry about it. Why? Because their mother was holding them. Because I had my arms around them and in their little hearts and minds at that point, that was enough. David says, that's what I've learned, Israel. I've learned to turn my back on the stress and the striving and trying to peer into heaven and take on things that I cannot possibly control. Even if I put all my strength in it, I still can't control the outcome. Instead, here's the key in verse 2, I've taken responsibility for my trust in God. See, this is huge. When life gets hard, what most people will do in spiritual immaturity is start worrying about the problem, the circumstances, changing and controlling those, rather than focusing on the one thing that God has put under their control, which is simply this question, how much will they trust God in this situation? That's why Jesus said about the most elemental things in life in our reading in Matthew 6, don't worry about food or drink or clothing. Really? That's pretty big stuff. We're going to be naked and starve if we don't worry about that. No, don't worry about it. See the birds in the air? See the lilies in the field? They have a tiny, tiny little value. The lilies will be thrown into the furnace tomorrow, and your Father takes care of them. How much more will He care for you? And then He identified the heart of the problem. He said, how much will He care for you, oh, you people of what? Little faith. The problem is you don't trust Him. Why don't Christians pray first? Because we don't think it'll do much good. Far better to get to work. Why don't Christians give generously? Because they really think if they give, it'll be gone, and they might starve. Their family will suffer need. Why aren't Christians immediately learning to lean and rest in God when life becomes very difficult, like that chubby-faced little kid 
who not concerning himself with what the next 20 years of his life may bring, simply says, this is the person who loves me. David says, that's what I've learned. I make my focus not changing my circumstances, but putting my trust in God. Not fixing my problem, but fixing my hope, my trust, my faith on the God who knows me, who gives me the privilege of speaking to me. If you have that relationship with God, understand it came at the cost of the life of God's own Son, Jesus. Jesus loved people so dearly that He put Jesus on the cross to bear their sins. If you have that settled, there is literally nothing left to worry about. Nothing. Paul could write from prison and from very difficult places and say things like this, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How could he write? How could he how could Paul possibly something like, say something like that? Because he had learned, as David had, to rest in the God who provided all things. For those of you who are parents, and even for those of you who are still teenagers, but you have friends that you're trying to grow, help grow in their faith in God, this is one of the biggest favors, one of the biggest blessings you can do to them. See, my constant irritation, anger, upset, the things that I subject, sometimes the church and more often my family too, those all come from one simple place, and that place is called pride. I had a plan. I was working toward an outcome. It got blocked. I'm mad. Now, I'm not going to throw stuff around, but oh, man, I'm going to use sarcasm, and I'm going to use silence, and I'm going to use all kinds of things to let everybody know just what a raw deal I think this is, because I know what should happen here, and it's not happening. I'm ticked about it. Bad news. And I busy myself with fixing the problem. That is one simple thing, spiritual immaturity. I have taken something onto myself that is bigger than I am, and no wonder I'm stressed. I'm like that four-year-old worrying about the 401k. He can't possibly begin to handle it. If you're a parent or even a teenager who wants to help others grow in their faith, don't concern yourself with fixing their problem. Help them instead fix their trust and hope in God. See, the things that drive me the craziest is when I see that my wife or my kids are a little bit on the anvil of life. I think it's loving to immediately go about fixing it. A wiser, more spiritual conversation that will do them far greater good is to help them see the hand of God in it and direct them back to Him who loves them so dearly He gave His Son Jesus to die for their sins. Not to abandon them, but to focus them on the love of their heavenly Father who will never fail them even if their earthly father does. This is what David has learned. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But instead, he says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Would it be helpful to you to see an example of how David did this? Look backward in your Bible to Psalm 13. 
Let me show you a raw slice of his life and give you an example of how he worked through this and got himself in that correct attitude again in the middle of something that must have been very, very difficult. Psalm 13. This psalm was, became very important to my family and to my life when I was 18 years old. Since I was in grade school, my mother's had all kinds of pretty serious health problems. The first among them was devastating migraines. Migraines so bad that they would knock her down for days. Migraines so bad that when they were very severe, the only way to interrupt them is to put her in the hospital and give her general anesthesia. That's what they ended up doing. There were days when I was a teenager where she would spend 10, 15, 20 days a month crippled, just literally laid low, couldn't eat anything, could barely bear water. That's when the hospitalization came in to give her IV fluids and put her under completely, hoping that her brain would settle down and stop creating that agonizing pain. When I was 18, I was at my mother's bedside, and she was just about at the breaking point, and I went out of there disconsolate, looking in my Bible for a word from God that would give me perspective and would help me understand and process, express what I was feeling. That's when I found Psalm 13. It's been important to me ever since. This also is a psalm of David. Listen to him from the first verse to verse number six, work his way through very difficult circumstances by crying out to God. He's going to begin like an unweaned child, like a child on the breast who's beginning to feel hunger and desperation and wants to control the situation and is angry and upset and fighting and crying and struggling and raging. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Watch the turn now. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Here's my question. It's a song. David's a songwriter. Do you think his circumstances change between verse 1 and verse 6? No. What's changed? His attitude. He said, my life does not depend on me fixing this problem. My life depends on me fixing my faith in God. That's why he says, if you'll go back to Psalm 131, he says, I've given up trying to peer into heaven. He understood what Anselm, 11 centuries later, Anselm, a great Christian, wrote in the 11th century this in one of his prayers. I do not seek, O Lord, to penetrate thy depths. I by no means think my intellect equal to them, but I long to understand in some degree thy truth, which my heart believes and loves. Listen, here's the key. For I do not seek to understand that I may believe but I believe that I may understand. God, I trust you. 
I don't need to understand all that you're doing. I don't need to see the outcome. I don't need to get a detailed explanation of the plan. I'm like a wean child. I've been through this. I've raged and cried at mother because I was hungry and I thought I would die. But day after day, I've learned that my parents actually do know best, and they have cared for me, and they love me, and they protected me, and now I am safe in parents' arms, and in their goodness I will rest. That's what God wants. Your circumstances, He can change in a moment. There's nothing too difficult for Him. It's never that your circumstances are out of His control. What He somehow, and I don't completely understand this, because it's a genuine relationship, what He leaves, at least in some big measure to us, is this vital question. In the storm, how much will we trust Him? If circumstances are adverse, if we're not getting the outcomes we want, if we feel the pang of hunger and desperation and need, how much in that situation will we lean into our Father and simply trust Him? That's why David said at the end, O Israel, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David understood that he had stood for a long time between the crossroads of pride and trust. He knew that he could not be proud. He could not keep looking up into heaven. He could not keep trying to search for his own answers and get all understanding and only then be satisfied and trust to the Lord in the same time. That's why he said, I've chosen trust instead. No wonder Peter explains to us later, explaining one of the Psalms, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may lift you up in due time, casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. When the storm rages, what does Peter say? What am I going to do? I'm not going to try to control my circumstances. I'm going to take shelter under the mighty hand of God and rest there, even as the storm rages against me, knowing that in his time, in Father's time, he'll lift me up instead. All the while, I can throw all of these things that are too big for me, that are crushing me, that are costing me sleep, that are pushing me toward dependence on other people and substances and all kinds of terrible things that end up being hollow promises of relief, I'm going to say goodbye to all of that and I'm going to lean instead like a well-fed child. I'm going to lean into my Father knowing that my provision will come from Him in His time. That's what David was trying to tell Israel. That's why he says in verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. As a parent might, David says to Israel, I won't always be your king. In this difficulty, as you climb this hill looking toward our capital, as you remember that our military might is concentrated in Jerusalem, Remember, your real hope is not in the strength of your king or his armies. Your real hope is in the Lord who built Israel. Trust Him now. Trust Him forever. Trust Him in the next storm. What David's trying to tell us is that stress and striving end by resting and trusting. That's all. Stress and striving don't end. They never cease except by trusting and resting in your heavenly Father. Could I invite you to look back over that list? 
or remember the things that came crowding into your mind, made it even a little difficult maybe to pay attention in church because you were reminded of the troubles that await you outside these walls? All of those things, too big for you. In all of those things, God is good to you. Let's pray. Let's make it practical. I'm going to be quiet for a moment and invite you to pray to take those things that are too big that you've been proudly, anxiously, with hard work trying to control. I'm going to give you instead some time to take those to the Lord. And be like his little child, literally, and say, here's all the things that concern me. Here's all the things that worry me, Father. They're too big for me. I'm giving them to you. I'm not going to walk away from my responsibilities, but I'm going to leave these here with you because they're too big for me. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I can't carry them any longer. I'm going to rest in you. I'm going to climb up in your lap, and I'm going to rest because even though my problems aren't solved, I know you're good. I'll be quiet now, and I want you in prayer to give those things to your Heavenly Father. Lord, what a great God you are that hundreds of people across two services can all cry out to you some with real intensity, pointing out all kinds of problems, and you can bear them all. You understand them all. You know more about them than we do, and you love us. Give me and give my brothers and sisters grace that when the pressure's on, we would lean into you with the confidence and the peace and the rest of a child who's no longer struggling for the bottle, but is content with the presence of his mother, his father, because he knows that in that strength, not his own, all will be provided, all has been planned, all will be well. We'll be tested on this. I know I will. I already have been this morning. Help us in that moment to not choose stress and striving, to choose instead personal trust in the God who made all things and loves us more deeply than we'll ever be able to completely understand. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.